We're in Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to try to get the whole fourth chapter tonight. We're going to do what we can. Paul wrote this book because he was dealing with two things. He was dealing with Jewish people, and, and he called themselves Christians, but you know, he questioned that. Coming to the church at Galatia, who was primarily Gentile, and telling them, Jesus is fine, but you've got to convert to Judaism. And then he was also dealing with the fact that they questioned his apostolic authority. And we've seen all that. When we come to chapter 4, we're, we're coming off a section where he dealt with Abraham versus the law. Abraham, the covenant with Abraham was, Abraham was a promise. God made a promise to Abraham that all the world be blessed through him, ultimately in Jesus. The law came along. The law had an important role. And that law helped in understanding the promise, but it never substituted. It never, it never took precedent. And then when Christ came, the law was no longer necessary. The promise had been fulfilled. And so we saw all of that. And so in chapter 4, what we have uh, is we have Paul uh, speaking to them in the first few verses, the first, oh, about uh, 7 or so, actually the first uh, 10, I think it is, verse 11. Paul, Paul makes basically a statement about faith, in essence, uh, about, uh, the, about their status. And then in verses 12 through verse uh, 20, he, uh, what he does is make an, uh, a, a, gives an entreaty or, or a question, or he asks them of something. And then 21 on, he gives an illustration. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 says, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. So he brings up this kind of this, it's a bit of an illustration, but it's just a point that he's trying to make to kind of make a connection. And he's dealing with the world that we're not accustomed to uh, in, in, our, in our culture uh, when we give an inheritance, you know, we put it in the will, who gets what, if you don't, there's contested, you know, we do all those things. But back then, it was similar, but fundamentally, a man's children will receive so much. And uh, if, if you had, especially your sons, let's just say if you, if you had two, two sons, uh, the oldest would get a double portion from the youngest. If you had three sons, the oldest still always got a double portion. The oldest always got a double portion. But part of the, the growing up process was the determination of when they could get their inheritance. In other words, the father could make determinations as to when a son would or wouldn't get it. You see a little bit of that in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 with Jesus. What's important is this. The heir is a child. The heir is underage. A child doesn't necessarily mean a little child, but it's just a youth. He doesn't differ from a slave. In other words, it wasn't uncommon for uh, a man who had a, a, large, a large house or a large farm or whatever he might have, a household, uh, to have servants. Uh, and those servants might have children. And a son uh, or any of his children actually might grow up with, with the servants. They'd be friends. They'd grow up together. They were treated in many ways alike. The son really was no different than the slave child. Uh, in verse 2, it says he was under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now, the word for guardian speaks of someone who oversaw the money, the property. The word manager, steward, comes from the word that oversees the running of the house or the running of the farm. So a young man would have people who may be, and they, all, they both might be servants. They might be slaves of a wealthy man. So the, the, the child would actually be under the authority of these guys. And, and the, the household manager could be really tough. The fathers wanted their children to be raised with discipline. They didn't want them coddled. They didn't want them spoiled. Now, it wasn't that they would lay their hand on them or physically punish them that way, but they would be tough. They would be critical. They, they would try to, back in that day, make 
you know, strong men out of them because those kids had to grow up and, and in a tough world. That world was a tough, ruthless place. So they could be treated poorly at times all the way up until the time set by the father when the father would determine they would get what they would get. So as an analogy to that, we, while we were children, while we were lost and not saved is, is, is basically what he's saying, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. In other words, just like that heir had to be answered to that guardian, we, before we reached the age of when we came to Christ, were in bondage too. We were in bondage to the elemental things, of, of just in essence to the normal rules of culture and society and, and the laws, you know, just the, the normal stuff, the, the, the laws of, of nature, the laws of whatever. We, were, we just weren't free. Ultimately, sin kept us in bondage. With that understanding, he said, when the fullness of time came, when, in other words, when God was ready, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so here he says, when the fullness of time. One of the key points, one of the key things that we understand about Christ is he came when the time is right. Numerous places it says when the time is right, when the time had come. When you read the gospel stories, it, it sets forth that everything was just right. Uh, in, in Matthew, you see that particular with, uh, with the wise men. Things, things were the way they needed to be. There's a star in the east had come. The time had come. Uh, in Luke, that Luke talks about uh, you know, John the Baptist was coming and everything was falling into place exactly when God was ready. God always does things when he's ready. He doesn't do them when we're ready. We need to be ready for our God. When we pray, our goal is to pray that, God, we will, we will be ready for your timing when things occur. Now, we may ask him to do it our way. I do it all the time. Say, God, if you need some help, let me suggest to you when it would be a good time to get this done. <laughs> we're trying to build faith, too. Need $6 million. I've explained to God how nice it would be if he could make that happen quickly. I've given him some time frames that I think might be significant. In the end, I understand this, he will do it when he's good and ready. And the amazing thing is, I'll be good and ready also. <laughs> I don't have much choice. What did he do? He sent forth his son, but he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law. So he sent forth his son, Christ, the second person of the Godhead. And when Christ came, you know, and, and, and Matthew and, and Luke tells about it, John tells us uh, to a degree, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. When he came, he was born of a woman, he was born as a human. So you have the Son, deity of God, born of the woman. By the way, when people say that Paul rarely makes mention of things like, you know, the virgin birth, which he doesn't use that specifically here, but what Paul does quite often is talk about the nature of Jesus, that he's God in the flesh, he's God and human, deity and humanity. He talks about that. This is one of those places. But when he came uh, born of a woman, he came uh, under the law. In other words, just like everybody else back then, he was under the law. Awesome. That does not mean that as God that he was subject to the law, but it means as a person in this world, and he was fully human, you cannot separate that out. He came under the law. and Oh, by the way, Jesus actually kept the law perfectly. So that what he might do, he might do something positive or active and something passive. The active thing is to redeem those under the law. The word redeem means to buy back. It means to purchase, to pay a price. Jesus redeemed us. The, at the cross, we say he redeemed us. 
What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood redeems us. It pays for us. Now, sometimes people get too carried away and say, well, you know, who did he make the payment to? And there's all these theories about who did he, did he pay God? Did he pay Satan? Did he pay what? That's not, that's not pay anybody off. I mean, that's not the point of the illustration of, of, of redemption. Redemption means you just paid the price. No one had to receive the price. He just paid the price. But not only did he redeem us, save us from the law, because the law can't save us. We've already saw that last couple of weeks. Then he made it so that we could be receive adoption. We, we became adopted. Debbie and I uh, have our daughter, Kelly. We adopted her when she was 10 days old. She, she knew about it. You know, we always just taught her that. She had no say in the matter. We went and we got her, brought her into our world. I always used to tell her when she was acting up, honey, I kept a receipt. I can take you back. We were kind enough to bring you into our world. Stop doing that stuff. Doesn't, doesn't change anything. They still, in fact, you know, but the point of that is there was something special. I mean, we used to always tell her, you know, we, we, you know your, your, your birth mother gave you up because she loves you. She couldn't take care of you. And we adopted you because we love you. And we keep you because we love you. Now that changes. Now notice this. The adoption is as sons. That it's, it's there again, I always try to make this clear. Don't get all caught up in sons and daughters. The son was a title. It's, you know, daughters didn't get the inheritance. The son did. So as the heir, he was adopted as a son. Now Paul says this, because of this, or because you are sons, even as women, you are sons in the sense that you are the heir. Don't get bent out of shape over that. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, our father. Now, he has sent forth the spirit that comes from the Son and the Father. The Holy Spirit connected the Father and the Son. They're all connected. The spirit comes into our hearts. It lives within us. One of the things to say all the time, it is the Holy Spirit that indwells within us, not Jesus. The spirit of Jesus does as the Holy Spirit. And we cry out, Abba, Father. The, the word Abba is a term of endearment. It I, you know, sometimes people say it's like our English term, daddy. Well, not, not really. I mean, our little kids call us daddy. It's, it's more, you know, when, when my father, uh, you know, you know, an older, or any time really, but when I needed to talk to my dad and I needed to say something serious or whatever, I, I would say dad. It was a term of endearment. I didn't say father, I want to talk to you. I said, actually, I would say pop, I want to talk to you. Abba, it means that dad, pop. It, it's, that, it's that term of familiarity. Of, of comfort, but Father speaks of a certain distance, and He is our Father. So He is the God who is the Father of all all of those who come to Him. He is the Father, the Heavenly Father. But He is He is the the Abba. He's the Dad. He's the He's the one who is close to us. We have the Spirit, and that Spirit allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. Therefore, Paul says, "You are no longer a slave; you are a son." And if a son, you're an heir through God. And he just, going all the way back to what he said, when you came to Christ, he brought you out of the law. He brought you away from the law, made you an heir to the kingdom. The spirit, Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you so that you can call out to the heavenly father, Abba, my father. He did all that. Jesus did redeemed you and adopted you as his son. So, verse 8, however at that time 
when you did not know God. Remember, they were Gentiles. They had no knowledge of God. You were slaves to those by which nature are not gods. So you, were, you had all these little false gods. They're not gods. You were slaves to them. But now, he says, now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, you know, it's, they'll say it's not who you know, it's who knows you. It's not whether you know God, it's whether God knows you as his, as his child. How is it that you are turning back to, notice what he says, the weak without power, or the worthless, which means useless, vain, elemental things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Now, now you've been made, you've been adopted as an heir. Why, why would you want to go back to that world? Why? It doesn't make any sense. You've been freed from those gods that couldn't save you. Why do you want to go back to the law, in essence, to gods? Why do you want to move in that direction? He says, <laughs> you observe days and months and, re and seasons and years. I fear for you. Perhaps I labored over you in vain. Now, the, the, the term days and months, seasons and years, that, that Jews and pagans and, and all different groups have different festivals. Some, some deal with days, some, you know, the, the, the seasons, the months, years. Sometimes, if you do some study on this, people start breaking this down as to what days means and months means and seasons and all that. And, and, and I get all that. You can. But whenever you have lists, in, in a couple of weeks we're going to be uh, in chapter 5, and you had the fruit of the Spirit, peace, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, you know, faithfulness, self-control. People try to take those nine elements down and try to break it down, you know, and, and a little bit you have to, but, you know, I have so much of this, and I'm not very good at that, you know, and they forget the whole thing. It talks about one fruit, and, and the purpose isn't you try to analyze the nine, but try to understand the one. Lists, by and large, are there to be comprehensive, not exhaustive. It's not that you try to figure out every part of it. Is that you get to understanding. Here's what he's saying is, why are you trying to celebrate all the things that they celebrate? Whether it's from a month or is it, why, why are you doing all that? I'm afraid that my work was in vain, which means that you weren't really saved. Remember, go all the way back to chapter one. He said, whoever preaches another gospel, let him be cursed. It's no gospel, they're not saved. I'm afraid if you go back that way, it means you were never saved. He's not saying you lost something. He's saying it'd be evidence you never had it. It's a danger. We need, well, I'm going to talk about this, so I won't get finished with chapter 4 tonight. It's okay. There is the concept we see sometimes about falling away in, in the scriptures. Hebrews talks about it. And we struggle with that because we, we rightly believe you cannot lose your salvation. I had a discussion with one, a guy one time who was, uh, a different kind of Baptist than, than me. <laughs> this means he was an inferior Baptist. Uh, I just lump him Southern Baptist, inferior Baptist. There's lots of inferior Baptists. But, but he believes you can lose your salvation. And, you know, we were talking, and, and I just said, brother, the people you describe are lost, but they were never saved. You can't lose what you never have. There are, there are people, and they talk about in Scripture, and this is kind of what Paul talks about, who embrace the Christian faith. They embrace the dogma 
they embrace the ecclesiastical, the, the, the churchiness, the liturgy. They embrace the, all the tangible aspects of Christianity, but never trust the Savior. At some point in life, they will move away. They will fall away. They will fall away from something that was never there. It, it's kind of like, this is a, kind of a crude illustration in the sense this doesn't always work, but it's one thing if, if I'm falling off a cliff and someone's up there and I grab their hand, I can hold on for so long, but eventually I grow weak and I'll let go. But if they grab my hand, they can pull me up and say, lots of people grasp at Christianity, but at some point they just let go. Those who are saved have the, have the Savior grasp them and pull them into salvation. So, when, you know, when we see Pastor Bell falling away, and we, you, know, we, you can try to break it down and, and get into the, to the details of it. And I got it. I do that all the time. And I you know that. But in the end, I would just tell you this. It speaks of people who were never saved to begin with. I have seen that in my ministry many times. It's very sad. It's very sad to see that. But they had the opportunity to come to Christ. They saw it all, felt it all, touched it all, tasted it all, and then they rejected it all. So we need to understand that when you abandon Jesus and embrace the law, if that's the path you take, Paul says, everything was in vain. You have, in essence, fallen away. So verse 12, he gives an entreaty. It's personal. It's interesting. He says, I, I beg of you, I ask you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. Now, in Greek, he says, become as I, for I as you. It's, kind of, it's, a, it's an awkward Greek sentence. That you don't care about Greek, but I just want to share that with you so you'd be semi-impressed. And so in English, we just smooth it over because sometimes you've got to smooth the Greek over. <laughs> sometimes you smooth it over too much and you lose the meaning of it. But in essence, what he is saying is this. I want you to become like I am. I became like you. You did me no wrong. Now what he means is this. I want you to be fully, fully vested in Christ through faith. That's how I am. I became like you. Remember? He says, I am a Jew, a Pharisee. But I have become like the Gentiles. Not, not in adopting their ways, but I become one of you to share the gospel. I lived with you. I, I came into your homes. I, I helped teach your families. I became as you. Not as pagan, but as, as a Gentile. He says, you never did me any wrong before. And he gives a really interesting thing. But you know that it's because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. So when I came to you the first, very first time and preached, the reason I was there because of bodily illness. Now, one of the ongoing interesting things about Paul is what was his illness. There's other, there's other places he talks about it. Uh, and he mentions in a minute his eyesight. Many, and I tend to agree with this, think he has something to do with his eyes. Later on, he says, I write with which large letters. Some, some say that he may have contracted when he was down in the lower area 
uh, along the swamplands of, of uh, certain parts where he, before the first journey, he may have got malaria and he came up into Galatia because it was cool, like coming up here, was, the altitude's a little better, and uh, to heal up. Uh, there are other things we just don't really know, um, but we do know that the reason he ended up there was because of this illness. I think about it. No one wants to get sick. I hate getting sick. <laughs> Nobody really wants to get sick right now, you know. Every time something's wrong, you're like, uh-oh, what do I got? But the illness provided an opportunity for Paul to end up in Galatia. And there, he preached the gospel to Gentiles who came to Christ. And later on, wrote Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. All of that is aimed at Asia Minor, where he began his ministry. And think about the richness of all those books. Where then, okay, and and he said, and and that which was a trial to you, my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. In other words, whatever was wrong with him was pretty grotesque. I always like that. The commentators who try to explain what it could be, I'm like, it's not necessary to explain all that grotesqueness to us. He says, though, you receive me as an angel of God, as a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. In other words, you, you received me when I was preaching as if Christ was with you. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So somehow it affected his eyes. You would have done that for me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? In other words, I... I'm preaching the same thing to you now that I preached before. But those dead Judaizers came in. And now they've turned you and I into enemies. Why? What happened? They, that is the Judaizers, eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out that you will seek them. In other words, just what they're trying to do. They're trying to turn you away from Christ to the law so that you will become dependent upon them and not Jesus. You know what false teachers always do? They always force you to depend on them for truth. You know what true teachers of the gospel never do? They never put you in a position to depend on them. You don't depend on me for anything. You don't, my teaching you or preaching to you, you're not dependent on that. You depend on the gospel. That's all, all I do share with you what's in, in the scripture, especially through the New Testament and the Gospels. I do that. I serve you that way. You, you've called me. You said, you come do this for us. That's what we want you to do. We're not, you're not dependent on me. You don't need me. You don't need my teaching. It's not my teaching anyways. You don't care what my thoughts are. You didn't bring me here to tell you my opinion about things. You didn't bring me here to share with you what I think you ought to do. You brought me here so you can understand the gospel. You brought me here and you can send me packing whenever you want. I'll haunt you. <laughs> False teachers make you dependent on them. They send them your money and they'll send you something in return. Now, that does not mean, that's not the same thing as buying my book, Cauliflower is a Fraud. That's a completely different thing. Thirteen forty-nine. It's fine. <laughs> got Christmas coming. Come on, give me a break. 
He said they, they shut you out of the gospel to turn you to them. Whenever somebody takes you away from the gospel truth and takes you down a path that is of their imagination or of works, pretty much guarantee you they're a false teacher. Anytime somebody basically makes you need them or depend on them, no. There's this thing we believe, it's called the priesthood of the believer. You know what the priesthood of the believer is? Martin Luther came up with that term. We all Baptists think we came up with it. Well, only Luther was a Baptist. It means we're all priests before God. We all come to God. We have to believe what's called the soul competency of the believer. That means every soul makes their own decision about Christ. You're all capable of doing that. So when any time someone in any way makes you think that you need them or depend upon them or you've got to give them something so you can get something, they are a false teacher every time, always. So Paul says that to them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner and not only when I am present with you. So you ought to be desired in a commendable. Paul seeks them. Why? So they can be free in Christ. Paul's teaching them the truth. He's not saying you're dependent upon me. You're dependent on the Holy Spirit that is within you. I'm just sharing that with you. My children, here's the term of endearment, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He says, I, I, it's like this, we're, we're going through this all over again. It's kind of, I did this once, a few years back. Now, I'm understanding this. Sometimes it's like I'm preaching the same thing. They ain't getting it. I wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I don't know what's happened. I don't have time for the rest, but I'm going to do verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So here's the same. All of you who want to go back, he's saying to them, or go not back for the first time under Jewish law, have you not listened? Didn't say read, because they couldn't honestly read. Someone had to tell them, are you not listening to what the law tells you to do? It'd be like you and me, me saying, go back and read Exodus from chapter 20 through the end of Deuteronomy. No, the first five books, the, uh, the law of Pentateuch. No, the good part is Genesis through Exodus 20. And then it gets really boring. You know why it gets really boring? Because it's all law. I got to be honest with you. I get to that and I'm like, oh my goodness. The good part in Deuteronomy is just repeating Exodus, you know. There's some good stuff in Numbers. Some people die, some stuff like that. You know, some cool things like on. But I mean, you know why they call it numbers? Numbers? Because it's full of numbers. <laughs> Leviticus, the law. You read Leviticus? But someone in the church they say, I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm really Leviticus. <laughs> Boom. You won't be addicted to sleeping pills and you won't be addicted to Leviticus either. What I'm saying to you is simply this. That is so far from grace. So, the other day, I'll tell you this on the way out. Someone uh, handed me a FedEx size packet. I don't think the individual's here. If he is, you're not going to like this. Unmarked and all that, he gave it to me. I'm walking out of the, of the auditorium. And so I gave it to Troy. 
vet this. I don't want to read it. I do that all the time, by the way. If I get anonymous stuff, somebody pre-reads it so I don't have to. Because I just get angry. And, start, and I don't want to get angry between the first and second service. I'm praying, God, help me not to get angry today and be humble. And so here's this thing that made me angry. So Troy read it. And he told me it's okay. But he said this one thing. And he said, we, what we need, what America needs, is to go back to preaching the Ten Commandments. That's why, you know, we'd be save America, preach the Ten Commandments. I hope you preach the Ten Commandments. I hope you're man enough to do something like that. I didn't read it, Troy. Kind of paraphrase it. And he paraphrased, and I didn't paraphrase it back to you. And I'm, here's what he said, though. The hope for our country is the Ten Commandments. That's the law. The hope for our country is Jesus Christ. And if you don't know that, brother, sister, you have a whole big problem ahead of you. So I want you to understand it carefully. It's not the Ten Commandments aren't cool. We should do that. I get it. We should follow. I don't, you know, I'm not going to worship any idols. The only one that I break on a regular basis that I know of is the whole Sabbath thing. I don't worship on the Sabbath, but neither do you, and we're all guilty. I covet. I do that. But it is to this world out here going through a pandemic, going through an upheaval in our country. They don't need the law. They need Jesus. And you know what our task is? It's not to give them the law. It's to get them to Jesus as fast as we can. Because the law won't change their life. Jesus will change their life. Well, this, and I'll close and I'll let you answer questions. The reason we worship in a vacation Bible school and are adding back to all the things we do, and the reason we sing and we do all of that is because people need Jesus. And our primary obligation is to get them to Jesus. No law ever supersedes gospel. No law ever takes precedent over gospel.